Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, news from strange places, shopping, the Arts Express Corporate Media Watch episode this week, fear porn, the media and the marketplace, and peddling weaponry for the U.S. empire on TV. Or in other words, what happens to retired U.S. generals and Capitol Hill politicians and why? Like former Obama underling Secretary of Defense Lou Panetta, are they calling on air for the continuation of the U.S. war on Afghanistan for a second round when they hadn't even finished leaving the first time? Apparently, it's got more than a little to do with their vested interest in companies selling weapons of war to the government. In other words, on the U.S. taxpayer's dime and war as big business For instance, huge returns on Afghan weaponry for Lockheed Martin, Boeing, and Northrop Grumman, to name a few. In other words, America's longest war was not long enough. And why? And why endless war is big business. Artie's Donald Corder explains. Continue the Afghanistan occupation. Calls to delay the pullout of U.S.-led coalition troops have hit the mainstream media. When the decision was announced months ago, I said that I feared that we would come to regret this decision. And we already are. This, again, is a nightmare. When we were there, we had the cooperation of the Afghans. We worked with the military. There were a lot of partnerships involved. This is a national security threat. Are these just a bunch of overly patriotic Americans? It's unlikely. You see, the Taliban's victory crashed the profit party of America's gigantic military-industrial complex. And the mainstream media often omit that many overly jingoistic military officials have investments in that very institution. Take former U.S. General Jay Keane. He also happens to be the chair of the company that produces Humvees and sits on the board of another company that produces military equipment. So wouldn't you know he thinks it was a bad idea to leave Afghanistan? I think the administration made a terrible mistake in, in pulling our troops out and, and giving the Taliban the opportunity to take the country over. And, and now we're going to inherit the, an epicenter of radical Islam right inside of, <clears throat> inside of Afghanistan. It's going to become a more dangerous place. There's also retired U.S. General David Petraeus, a partner at a global private equity firm called KKR, which has assets in the U.S. defense sector. And Richard Haas is a former White House advisor who sits on the board of the investment firm Lazard, a firm that also serves defense companies. And we can't forget former U.S. Defense Secretary Leon Panetta, a senior counselor at Beacon Global Strategies, hardly an unbiased party. Another fair mention is Florida Republican Mike Waltz, who made up to $25 million in profits after selling a defense firm which has offices in Afghanistan. The problem is terrorism that happens in Afghanistan doesn't stay in Afghanistan. We will see al-Qaeda 3.0. They are working closely with the Taliban, and they do intend to attack America again. Former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice offered her two cents on why America's longest war was not long enough. 20 years may also not have been enough to consolidate our gains against terrorism and assure our own safety. We and they needed more time. Once again, Rice's place on the board of C3AI, a defense contracting company, is conveniently left out of her article. With all these powerful officials having one foot in the capitalist pool and the other in that of the U.S. government, it's not hard to imagine why endless war is a very lucrative business decision for some. As stock returns from 2001 to 2021 for government-contracted arms companies like Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman totaled more than 1,000%. And WikiLeaks founder and whistleblower Julian Assange tried to warn the world about it years ago. The goal is to use Afghanistan to wash money out of the tax bases of the United States, out of the tax bases of European countries, through Afghanistan and back into the hands of a transnational security elite. That is the goal, i.e. the goal is to have an endless war, not a successful war. For some reason, the mainstream media doesn't seem to find it necessary to tell their viewers that the experts they invite to inform public opinion on the Afghan war have a very specific agenda of their own. And coming up next on Arts Express, 
Karen. Who is she? What is she up to and why? A conversation with Karen director Coke Daniels about the Karen racist phenomenon targeting African Americans. That is nothing new. Some of the most glaring cases among the countless victims of Karens, counting Emmett Till and the Tulsa massacre historically, but more evident with eyewitness videos in this age of the Internet. The African-American filmmaker breaks down his assessment of white female racism and what compelled him to make this movie, starring Orange is the New Black's Taryn Manning as the Karen in question. First, some scenes from Karen, then Coke Daniels. I guess this is a long way from East Point. Baby, you just gotta give it a chance. They're black. Do you mind keeping it down? If you don't comply, I'll tell the manager. Somebody's taking home security serious. Hi! I am Karen Drexler. I'm your neighbor. You need to be taking your trash cans off the curb right when the trash is picked up. Is she nice? Yeah, she's nice. Wait a minute. We have a white entitled neighbor named Karen. Karen. Hey, enjoy yourself. There she is, slaving away in the kitchen. I've come across some very suspecting teenagers. Suspecting? Can you please hurry up? Please, it's either very aggressive, yep. I left my wallet with my ID at home. Leave us alone, we didn't do anything! How the heck did you end up moving to this neighborhood? Next thing you know, we have criminals. You take care of him, and I will take care of her. Would you mind stepping out of the car? My office has uncovered some disturbing information on her and her brother. She doesn't like black people. We have a search warrant. Well, I'm black. I know, she doesn't like you either. I want to sell the house. What do I do? You can't tell me, huh? We are living next door to a racist. You went in her house? You wouldn't want your wife to know our little secret, right? There's not standard police procedure back there. What do we have here? We got a hammer. Everything looks like nails. You people are very angry. Shut your mouth, boy. Bad things happen to people that don't comply. So, have you ever been a victim of a Karen? Um, it's so funny. I've, I've had a couple close calls. I actually had one recently. It was pretty funny. Um, and I was actually with the stunt coordinator from the film, Karen. Um, but, you know, fortunately, uh, cooler heads prevailed. Um, I had an experience with the Ken one time. We had a neighbor. We lived in an apartment building. I guess that's what they're called, or Chad. I don't know. They call the, the the white uh, male version is a different uh term but um you know constantly calling the police on us for no reason that type of thing so you know that type of situation but definitely you know i've had my fair share of um interaction with bias and and entitlement and things of that nature at every level in life so um yeah not not per se a karen you know incident per se but that type of same you know entitlement you know what i mean and what led you to want to write and direct a Karen movie? And is it in any other way autobiographical? No. Um, what inspired me to write it was last year during the civil unrest due to the death of uh, George and Brianna and Ahmad. Um, you know, as a, as a black man in this country and a black creative, I just wanted to, um, you know, use my voice and use my platform to speak to some of these issues. And I felt like Karen was something that, is, is a euphemism that we're all familiar with. And it was kind of a level playing field to talk about some of these issues from an entertainment standpoint. Um, you know, but also it's definitely social commentary. You know, it's a bit of satire. You know, obviously taking a, a, a Karen incident and turning it into a dark suspense thriller is, is you know, already a, a, a huge uh, challenge, you know, in terms of uh, bending genres like that. So, um, but yeah, none of it, None of not all of it is this, you know, art. None of it is uh, from based on specific real life experiences or, you know, we, we definitely took some of the Karen tropes and kind of worked them into the story, you know, um, you know, but but none directly related to any of the, 
you know, real life Karen incidents that we've all seen on, you know, news and social media and everything. And what are your thoughts about the phenomenon of white female racism, which has existed as long as this country, with among the most terrible events brought to light historically, Emmett Till and the Tulsa Massacre? Yes. And how would you contrast it with white male racism? Um, I don't know. That's a, that's a very interesting question. Um, but I mean, it's definitely something like you said, it's interesting. You brought up Emmett Till because I've told people that very thing where I say, you know, Emmett Till was killed over a Karen type incident. You know what I mean? But, um, I don't know. It's, it's a different, it's, it's, it's the, um, you know, protecting the white lady against the evil black predator type of, uh, mentality that's, you know, been in this country, like you said, for decades. Um, and it's a shame that it's still here and it still is, is amongst many of the, the weapons that racist people and entitled people use. Cause you know, a lot of, a lot of times, um, even when you speak to most racists, they're going to tell you they're not racist. So it, it's an entitlement that leads to racist tendencies or exposing really, you know, maybe deep seated feelings that they actually have. So it's just it's a different thing you know and it's definitely been weaponized by the you know i'm scared i'm threatened uh you know he looked at me he whistled at me i was sexually assaulted you know things like that of weaponizing that entitlement you know to the detriment of of you know like you said you just named a couple incidences but there's you know ones that haven't been captured by by history or the media or anything like that so you know and it's a shame that all these years later that that's still going on, you know, and it's going to continue. It's, it's not, you know, racism, unfortunately, I don't ever see ending. I wish it would, but it's just, uh, it's, it's so multi-layered, you know, there's so many different layers of, of the onion that Shrek would say to pull back. So Now, you give Taryn Manning's Karen a backstory that takes some of the edge off her as the designated villain, her fears as a widow with no man around, her husband a cop killed by a black man, and having lived in a high-crime neighborhood, why did you choose to do that rather than a woman just motivated by racism? Well, because uh, just like I just said, it's um, it's actually a situation where a lot of racist people don't believe they're racist, and when, and when they're approached and asked why, they have some kind of logic to it in their mind, even though it doesn't make any sense to the rest of us or hold any water. But in her mind, you know, these things all make sense to her. I just wanted to, you know, I wanted to dig deeper into the psyche of, of somebody like this, you know what I mean, of, that's entitled and, and, you know, goes to these levels of, of hatred and bigotry and what would drive that. Not saying that this, you know, by any means excuses it, but where did it come from? You know, because it was, you know, there was actually, you know, we, we did many uh, revisions of the script. But there was a longer version of the script where I dug even deeper in that and went back into like family history and stuff like that, because a lot of the times racism is in, inherited. A lot of times it's by experience. Sometimes it's just by, you know, osmosis or like you're just supposed to know if you grow up in these environments, you know, this this race doesn't mingle with that race or, you know, they're different from us or, you know, whatever the case may be. And please talk about getting civil rights and George Floyd family attorney Ben Crump involved and why he wanted to be part of your film. Yeah, it was it was amazing, man. And that came via Terrell Whitley, who's one of the producers on the film, as well as uh, Cameron Mitchell and Artistry Collective, who um, managed Ben Crump. Um, you know, it, it just was, I felt like it was an interesting spin to bring it home and bring it to reality of what exactly we're addressing. And Ben, um, you know, when Cameron and, and his team gave him the script, you know, um, Ben loved it. You know, he loved it immediately and, you know, sent me a, a really cool email saying that, you know, he felt strong about the material. And, you know, he's told me on several occasions how films like Karen help him in the courtrooms when he's having these battles over these types of situations and other situations. But I just really wanted to drive home the point at the end of the film, almost to the point of, of, of nauseam that, you know, we're not saying all white people are this or all black people are that or all cops are this. It's just we're all tired and fed up. And it's something that at this point, you know, anybody with a, with a pulse could see that this is an issue and, and has been an issue and continues to be an issue. So, yeah, it was, it was just amazing to get Ben Crump involved. He's also an EP on the film. He also brought uh, Keon Harold with him. That's another uh, little Easter egg in the film. Keon that's playing the trumpet in the end of the film is actually a young man's father 
who uh, got tackled in the hotel in New York by the, the oh. what they call it, the Soho Karen or whatever yeah. it was. So, you know, that was another twist that, that we brought, like, a, and, you know, to have him come play America the Beautiful. Um, we just, you know, I felt it buttoned it up well, and I'm happy people are responding to it. We were doing an interview yesterday, and the lady said that really, um, well, actually, I was watching the interview Taryn did, and the lady was saying how that really resonated with her at the ending to, you know, kind of bring it home and try to, you know, it, give some sort of hope and redemption and moving forward. Like, things are, things are changing, you know, so I think Ben Crump was, you know, I mean, there's nobody better to give that speech than Ben Crump, so... Now, there's been some controversy around Taryn Manning connected to positive things she said about Trump and QAnon, yet she was clearly enthused to come on board as your Karen, and even as a producer of the film. What can you say about that? I I don't I don't know a lot about that, and uh, you know I've, that's been brought up to me before, and my answer is always those are questions you got to ask Taryn. The only the only thing I can really speak on is my relationship with Taryn and the person I know. Um, she didn't she didn't know me from Adam. She read the script. She signed on specifically because she wanted to see change just like me. And she wanted to do something with her art that spoke to these issues. So, you know, I, I told somebody else to ask about that. I'm like, if she if she were some type of Trump supporter, all the Trump supporters hate her now. So I, I just it doesn't that narrative doesn't really make sense to me. Um, but she's a sweetheart and she you know, she, she, she loves people, you know, she's like a, she's like a little hippie chick. She loves people. (laughs) She sees what's going on in the world, just like we all do. And she wanted to help affect change. So yeah, I can't really, you know, speak on anything other than the Taryn Manning that I know and got the, you know, the, the pleasure and the honor to work with. Yeah. And what do you hope your film conveys to black audiences on the one hand and on the other hand to the Karens out there? Well, I just, from the, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a mixed uh, bag of nuts when you talk about what I want the black audience to get from this, because from a black audience perspective, we're experiencing this every day. You know, it's almost painful to watch it for a lot of people. And I've heard those comments because it's so real and it's, it's happening in real time. Like this is the first film I've been able to write something that's current event that's happening like right now, right now. Um, So, you know, it just, I, I just wanted to. I just wanted the conversations to move forward as it relates to uh, the social injustice and, and racism in this country, and I believe that we've accomplished that. We've stirred up a bunch of noise and had, you know, a bunch of different types of conversations and backlash or, or what may be. But um, you know, and then also, I, I think you know, I went out of my way again to, to have some empathetic white characters in the movie to show we're not saying all white people are racist. We're saying that there are certain people in the community that are racist and they need to, even need to be called out by their own people. So, you know, and we had a lot of um, white producers involved with the film that felt the same way. You know, just like, hey, this is great. Let's let's make a statement. Let's start some conversations. Let's, you know, shed some light on this. You know what I mean? Um, again, I don't know. It's not it's, to me, it's not really educating the black audience in any way because it's just this is what we experience every day. It's really just, you know, it's an extended uh, cell phone video clip of what we see all the time. So, you know, I think more so the the lesson is to be learned by, you know, other other communities and stuff like that of just to feel, you know, the pain and anguish of what, you know, black people go through in this country and abroad, you know, on a regular basis, you know, and, and from an entertaining standpoint. And also, you know, how microaggressions can turn into, violence you know as we've seen because again these Karen incidents just keep getting worse and worse so hopefully they'll never you know in any worse than they already have you know now according to statistics mostly white women last year alone live in fear of men they know but rarely reporting them or only years later and which led to the me too movement in the first place that so many women don't report these incidents as victims and yet the Karens among them rushed to report black men for either fake or frivolous reasons. What are your thoughts about that? I, I just, I don't have any clue as to what, especially this day and age, like even, even though he wasn't uh, white, I believe he was, um, you know, and I don't, I don't want to speak out of term, but I know he was maybe Latin or, or Middle Eastern. I'm not really, really sure. But the guy that owned the liquor store, that called the police on George Floyd behind the, uh, you know, the, the false currency or whatever it was they were saying he had. 
And um, he just said, you know, never again would he call the police if this is what it resorts to. And to me, you, these Karen, you, they know what you, they know what they're doing when they call the police. You know, like you, you don't know how this is going to end up when the cops come. We don't know which cops are going to show up. There's good cops in this world and there's bad cops. And when you call the police on a black man, especially with any kind of 9-11 alert, like you're scared or there's some violence or potential violence, you know, they, there's a good chance they're going to show up guns blazing. So you're weaponizing the police authority to to do your bidding, and it's it's evil. I mean, it's downright evil. I can't explain it any other way. And I just yeah. would hope that you know this is just a uh, this is putting a bandaid on a bullet wound, like you know Ben Crump said in the film. But I just would hope that hopefully you know showing the film in this light will maybe put the mirror to some of the Karen type behavior people's face to say, hey, this is this is ugly what we do because yeah. it is. You know, and Karen is out now in release, and now on Arts Express, mystery money, museums, the media, and art history, is all what it seemed. The full tangled story is explored in the investigative documentary, Savior for Sale: Da Vinci's Lost Masterpiece. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Some 15 years ago, the art world was aghast over what was called the biggest discovery of the 21st century, a newly found painting by Leonardo da Vinci. Originally bought for about $1,000, it eventually sold at auction for an astounding record-breaking 450 million euros. But was all what it seemed? Was the painting really by da Vinci? And who was the mysterious buyer? In a fascinating new documentary film, Savior for Sale, Da Vinci's Lost Masterpiece, the full tangled story is explored. I'm happy to be speaking today with the director and writer of Savior for Sale, filmmaker Antoine Vitkin. Hi, Antoine. Hi, Jack. Nice to speak with you. Where are you located now? Where are you speaking from? I'm speaking from Paris. I'm based in Paris since many years. What exactly is the painting we're talking about, and when did it first come to light? So Salvatore Mundi is a relatively small painting. It's not a big one. It's smaller than uh, Mona Lisa, for example. It was missing, and then it came back a, a decade ago. Uh, a New Yorker art dealer, Robert Simon, discovered it in a small auction in Louisiana. It was sold there as a late painting, a reproduction of a Vinci, a Vinci painting. And Robert Simon booked it for uh, $1,000. And uh, Robert Simon booked it because he recognized it. He thought it may be this old painting from Vinci that was missing for centuries. He did some expertise and he was able to prove that indeed this painting came from at least Vinci workshop. Okay, so Robert Simon realizes that this might be a lost original, not a copy. Did da Vinci paint all his paintings himself? That's the old question. But before that, Robert Simon had to do something very important. I mean, when Simon booked the painting, it was, it was damaged, destroyed. It was in a very bad shape, which also is a problem because the woman that uh, restored the painting, Diane Modestini, and she's a very good restorer, but uh -huh. because she did a very significant work on this painting, you have some people, some art experts, who called the Salvatore Mundi not a Vinci, but... Uh, a Modestini Vinci, meaning that because it was so much restored, you also could say today that the author of this painting may be Vinci or his workshop, but also Modestini. And that's one of the problems surrounding this painting. What some art historian told, told me, that they were very frustrated because 
they couldn't mm. access the painting or, or what was left of the painting when Simon booked it. Ah. But yeah, back ah. to your question, uh, Simon had the painting restored. It took a lot of money. It took a lot of time, three or four years. And then he presented it to some experts. Most of them were, were quite skeptical at the time. So he had to go to London, to the National Gallery. And at the National Gallery, some people there thought uh, that it may be from Vinci and not only from his workshop. Because, Jack, there is no doubt about the fact that the painting come from Vinci workshop. There is no doubt about that. We can prove that. The only question is, is that one of the of the dozens of painting coming from Vinci workshop. And when we speak about a workshop, you have to, to imagine that it's a, it's, it's a big workshop. It's not, you know, a, a few people painting uh, during the night. It's a company in a way. Was that a common mode of art production at that time? Yeah, absolutely. It was quite common. And that, <laughs> that's why this question is so relevant. Is that one of the dozens painting from Vinci workshop. And we know that it's uh, his workshop painted a lot of Salvatore Mundi's, which oh, is no. a, a, I mean, a biblical, uh, classical uh, theme at the time. Or is this Salvatore Mundi we're speaking about one of the very few painting from Vinci himself and only from Vinci? Uh-huh. And we have, uh, at the world stage, we have about... 15 or 16 painting uh, attributed to Vinci himself, like the Mona Lisa or Virgin, Virgin on the Rock, for example. So there's a huge distinction between Da Vinci painting and Da Vinci workshop painting. The, there is a distinction. Financially speaking, there is a difference. A painting from Vinci himself, as you can imagine, is very, very expensive. But a painting from from his workshop, that's not the same price. It could be sold for, I don't know, uh, a couple of millions. Uh, the Salvatore Mundi, which was attributed by Christie's to Vinci, it was 450 millions. Wow. So Robert Simon presents the painting to the National Gallery of London. And what happens? <laughs> During the main meeting, you had five international experts. A majority of experts were skeptical. They couldn't really answer. They say it was hard to answer. Uh, one of them thought, and she then wrote it, that it had, it had to be attributed to one of Vinci's uh, assistants. And one of them, uh, Martin Kemp, an art historian from Oxford was very enthusiastic. He had a kind of passion for this painting. He then became the main expert defending the, the authorship, the Vinci authorship. And based on that, the National Gallery decided to show uh, the Salvatore Mundi to the public, to the British public, during an exhibition in uh, 2010 presenting uh, the painting as Leonardo da Vinci without any doubts, which was, of course, uh, a problem. And uh, a lot of uh, art historians discovered this painting at this occasion, attributed to Vinci. And of course, as you can imagine, it was very good for the painting itself. It was an incredibly good opportunity for the sellers, Robert Simon in particular, because, uh, of course, it gave uh, an incredible v- value to, to this painting. You present a portrait of the curator of the National Gallery of London, Luke Sison, as sort of a, a, a pretty ambitious person who maybe put aside questions of authenticity in order to kind of pump up this exhibition he was having about da Vinci at the gallery. What does an exhibition like that mean financially to an institute like the National Gallery? It's meant a lot of money because those museums need visitors and need success for their exhibition to to have money to run a a museum, uh, to buy new paintings. And of course, the fact that you were able to present a new Vinci in the circle of this 
16 or 15 painting I was uh, referring to. Of course, it's an asset. So it could be a way to understand why someone like Jörg Sison didn't play it in the scientific common rules. Let me state it like that. That's not mm-hmm. the way you do that in art history uh, and among art uh-huh. experts. Although Robert Simon claimed it was not for sale, the agent for the painting starts negotiating for its sale to a Russian billionaire living in Monaco. Tell us about that. The only man who at at the end was interested and was ready to pay a significant amount of money, $80 million, was a Russian oligarch, Dmitry Rybolovlev, who at the time was buying a lot of artwork. I met his art advisor and uh, art dealer, Yves Bouvier, a man from Swiss. Bouvier had interest to to buy and then to sell the painting to Rybolovlev. And Bouvier explained to me that uh, Rybolovlev probably decided to buy it because it was a Christ. This go-between Yves Bouvier is not completely honest, is he? Tell us what happened. Yeah, it's it's a, a funny story in the old story, but um, the the man who uh, negotiates the, the, the painting for Rebolovlev, Yves Bouvier, wasn't probably very honest. And what we can say is that he booked a painting himself in Paris for $83 million to Robert Simon. And, and then a day after that, he said Rebolovlev that he booked it for uh, one... Uh, 120 million dollars, and he he asked some money to Rybolovlev. So he was in a position of uh, being an intermediary. And he did that for the Salvatore Mundi, and we discovered that he also did that for a lot of other artworks. Wow. He, he tells the billionaire that he negotiated 120 million euros, but it, he only really paid 83 million euros. So he's pocketing 40 million euros without the billionaire knowing about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, and he's charging his commission of 2% on top of that, I think Absolutely. absolutely. And, and he's still alive. And, um, oh. and he, he was able to talk to me in the and film. That's, it's amazing. He spoke about it. So, yeah. so Dimitri finds out the real selling price. Yeah. Uh, two years after that, he reading the press, you can imagine his reaction, but what is so interesting is that um, this, I mean, this maneuver was possible for one reason, which is the opacity in the art world. And there is an opacity also for financial reasons. For Rybolovlev, what I was able to understand and it, is that Rybolovlev wanted to hide a part of his money in buying artworks. And for that, he needed someone like Bouvier. He needed to have someone buying the painting for him without telling, of course, the, the seller that he it was booked for Rebolovlev. Uh, just an example, when Bouvier negotiated the, the painting in Paris, he didn't do that himself, which is very funny. He asked a friend from Corsica, a poker, uh, a poker gamer, to negotiate the painting for him. And for Bouvier, it was a way not to appear. And for Rybolovlev, using Bouvier, it was also for him a way not to appear. And of course, you have company in very exotic island, uh, mm. paying the Shell money. Shell companies, and, and we call them, right? You... So yeah, that was the reason why Bouvier was able to do that. It's also a system uh, that I describe in, in my documentary. So the billionaire gets kind of disgusted and he decides he's going to sell this thing. He gives it over to Christie's, and Christie's auction house puts on an amazing display of public relations on television and press, don't they? Absolutely. And they wanted to avoid something, which is a fact that a lot of people in the art world knew that this painting had some problems. And to avoid that, they decided to sell the painting not to uh, art experts, but to people who are not as expert uh, than people who buy, who usually buy uh, Renaissance mm. paintings. And I, 
I believe that they, themselves, they, they couldn't imagine that the painting would, uh, would reach uh, such prices. Oh, on the television show CBS This Morning, you show a Christie advisor saying, well, there are no questions of authenticity. Was Christie's being honest? Legally, they were honest, uh, but they, they tried to... But clearly, there were questions of authenticity. They, even, they, even if there you... were questions. They didn't tell there were questions. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, they, they, they did what they had to do as an auction house. They tried to show the painting in the better way they could. Okay, so the, the, the painting sells at auction at Christie's for $400 million plus $50 million that Christie's takes as their commission. Everybody's euphoric. Who bought it and why? That was a question at the time. Nobody knew. I mentioned the opacity of this world. This opacity means that for an auction like that, you don't know who, who buy it. In this case, it was a mystery, but the New York Times was able to reveal that the buyer was Mohammed bin Salman, a crown prince wow. of Saudi Arabia, from insider in the kingdom and from intelligence uh, services in the U.S., which show you that it's, it immediately became a geopolitical issue. And the other question is why? And uh, no one was able to, to know why. I had some clue about that. I talked to some people um, surrounding the Saudi Arabia leadership. This country, which are relatively new and which are rich, uh, tried to get artwork from the West to build museum because they tried to have more tourists in the country. It's also a way to show to the world that their country, Saudi Arabia or the Emirates or Qatar, are countries that exist in the, in the cultural map. I mean, it's interesting doing that for economic and political and diplomatic issues. They wanted to kind of move the locus of culture from Europe to Saudi Arabia in some way, and this would be kind of an anchor point. Absolutely. And Saudi Arabia has a lot of projects. Uh, the project to, to build a couple of museums, and they have no artwork, as we know, to put in these museums. You can imagine that Mohammed bin Salman wanted to buy a Vinci for one of his museums. It's interesting because it reminds me of the, I guess it was the early 1970s, where the Shah of Iran invited many, many European cultural events into Iran to kind of show his modernization, to, to show that he wasn't one of the old school, that he was new and, you know, he yeah. wanted to invite Western money into his country. And it, it seems like maybe a similar thing was going on in Saudi Arabia. Absolutely. It's a, it's a comparison you, you absolutely can do, yeah. Even though there are huge doubts about its authenticity, I can imagine that MBS didn't want to hear them. And in fact, he, he wants to have the painting shown at the Louvre next to the Mona Lisa. And I'm, I'm going to leave that as a cliffhanger as to what happened. Um, I want to ask some questions about your view on the art world in general. One person in the film says, how do you turn a thousand bucks into 450 million bucks? You can only do it with art. Is the international art world totally corrupt? Is art no more than a commodity like pork bellies subject to all kinds of market manipulation? In the world today, you have a lot of money. You have a lot of people trying to invest a lot of money. And yeah, you have to deal with the fact that you have a lot of very, very rich people that sometimes those people want to hide their money and to find very speculative uh, way to invest their monies. Well, as we wrap up, do you think we will see the Salvatore Mundi again in our lifetimes? I hope so. I personally would be very, very happy to see it for the first time because I couldn't see it. It disappeared since the time it was shown in London at the National Gallery. Yeah. So it will be very interesting to see where it appear again and who uh, make it appear again. This is a, a, a non-ending story. Well, thanks so much, Antoine. I've been speaking with Antoine Vitkin, director of Savior for Sale, Da Vinci's Lost Masterpiece. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. Hey, hey, hey. Oh. Please don't 
and Savior for Sale is in release online on September 17th, and the music you've been listening to is Fake by the Tech Thieves. And we'll go out now on Arts Express with Bro on the Global Literary Beat, the crime novel and the pandemic. Will it ever be the same? The Global Festival of Crime Writing at Lyon, and with connections to mass protests, masks, colonialism, Mussolini, the Klan, unicorns, terrorism on the page and in the streets, and the U.S. police force as the sixth largest military budget in the world. Here's Arts Express Paris correspondent Professor Dennis Bro filing this report. This is Bro on the Global Literary Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, the crime novel post-containment and post-Black Lives Matter. Will it ever be the same? As the world begins to wake up and we enter the period of post-confinement, in France, the first major festival return, just prior to the reopening of the Cannes Film Festival, was the Jay du Polar, the global festival of crime writing, the largest of its kind, if not in the world, then definitely in Europe. There was an air of hesitancy, of dipping a toe into the water, with everyone inside except the speakers kept at a distance from the audience, wearing masks, and the crime novel Book Fair moved to tents outside the main hall. There was also an air of hesitancy because this was the first crime writing festival, one branch of which in France is called the Policière, which celebrates the deductive skill and thirst for justice of the police. Post the global questioning of the tactics and ends of the police in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests. The health restriction generally did guarantee an air of safety about the festival, as one security guard checked bags, the result of the largely overblown and previous terrorist pandemic, while a second one made sure everyone used the hand lotion before entering the building, the result of the latest pandemic. Travel between countries is still a question, as R.J. Ellery from England and the continent's most popular crime writer, Iceland Arnoldur Idriazen, whose novel begat the Hollywood film Jar City, were both unable to come because of the quarantine restrictions active upon their return to their country. This was balanced out by remote appearances by the American recounter of drug traffic, Don Winslow, and the Brazilian author of a series of books on the Amazon city of Belém a site not only of exploitation of natural resources, but also of drug traffic. France has now started vaccinating at a rapid rate, hoping to reach the 70% mark by the end of the summer, with the cases falling every day. But as with the rest of the world, with the threat of ever more contagious variants, can you say Delta or worse yet, Delta Plus, hovering over this attempt to restart this branch of French soft power. The country though behind the U.S. and Britain, leads Europe in the number and global range of its publications and translations of this most popular of all genres of fiction. Through festivals like the Quai du Polar, France strengthens its hold on the genre, not only because French authors pour out a seemingly endless supply of crime novels, but also because its translators bring novels in from all over Europe and the rest of the world, and in that way, the country becomes the mediator and meeting place for global crime fiction, which, because of its place on the market, functions almost like a branch of the world-leading French luxury industry, which makes high-end clothes, perfumes, and accessories. Which brings us to the twin poles of the crime novel. In France, for every policière, whose tradition goes back to Sherlock Holmes and Agatha Christie, and which fits the entertainment-slash-luxury industry mold, there's also a more hard-boiled element of crime fiction in the Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler tradition, with a much more socially situated milieu and a critical message called the Roman Noir. The difference was readily apparent at the festival. Le Monde, the newspaper of the center-left, fired the first salvo in its pre-festival article, where it questioned the very idea of fiction from the point of view of the police in light of the George Floyd and other killings and the demands of justice from a police force whose budget for domestic control in the U.S. makes it the sixth largest military budget in the world. Le Monde quoted the American contemporary noir novelist Benjamin Whitmer and criticized his own genre in which he said, the daily violence of the police is totally ignored. Whitmer, the author of Cry Father and Pike, then elaborated on his refusal to romanticize this now much criticized institution. I do not write about good cops for the same reason I do not write about unicorns. Neither exists, he said, and added that if the police do their work correctly, 
That work is violence against the poor and working class for the protection of the upper class. This view was echoed by some of the speakers in the festival. The conservative weekly digest Le Point countered with its view of the crime novel in an elaborate feature on the cozy mystery. Here writers, often in a nostalgic aristocratic vein like S.J. Bennett's The Windsor Knot on the Royal Family, return to the locked room mysteries, which, though they exhibit a good deal of humor, one of the cozy authors, M.C. Beaton's books, is entitled The Quiche of Death, and her absolutely fabulous type character is named Agatha Raisin, in homage to her predecessor. These books, though, disdain any social implications of crime and see it as a puzzle to be solved, rather than as an opening onto a deeper examination of the society. The hard-boiled novelists often echoed Whitmer's sentiments on the police. In his nonfiction, The Business Secrets of Drug Dealing, journalist Matt Taibbi describes the account of an anonymous marijuana dealer who claims that the police, far from being the expert sleuths of crime fiction and crime TV series such as CSI, in fact, operate mainly by grabbing informers off the street and beating on them until they give up names, with the testimony often inaccurate because it's obtained under duress. The Greek author Minos Aphthidiadis, who's the diver, is about the relation between Germany and Greece, with the latter subservient to the former during the 2008 government debt crisis, suggested that the police, far from battling crime, are part of a worldwide network that supports the worst elements of criminal activity, exploiting the weakest members of society, underage trafficking, drug dealers, child pornography, and female slavery. Without that support, he claimed, these activities would never be allowed to flourish. Arpad Soltes, from the former Yugoslav country of Slovakia, in his latest novel, Swine, writes about how organized crime in the form of the Calabrian mafia, the Nergenta, has insinuated itself into the highest levels of that society in both government and law enforcement. The novel, which begins and ends with the assassination of a journalist, recounts 25 years in the history of the country where one regime, claiming it was battling corruption, succeeded another and then became corrupt itself. Hard not to think of Joe Biden's equally Trump-like but suppressed Ukraine antics or his promise and then refusal to back the $15 minimum wage and his generosity in forgiving two-tenths of 1% of student debt after promising to forgive 50%, etc., Carlo Lucarelli, whose commissioner De Luca began as an inspector in the Mussolini fascist period in An Italian Affair, follows De Luca into the 50s as, with the U.S.-backed Christian Democrats in power, in order to pursue justice, he must join a secret service so secret it was never given a name, where he finds his former fascist police colleagues restored to power. Or reminded of the continual interplay in the U.S. between the Klan and other right-wing groups and the police, much in evidence in the way right-wing violence was tolerated and condoned, while any street violence was brutally repressed. In Germany also, the recent connection between the far-right AFD and the police was widely reported. Another one of the noir novels which illustrate social ills was Jerika Pavasik's Red Water, named the best Euro crime novel of the year. Pavisic, from the ex-Yugoslav country of Croatia, uses the 30-year investigation of the disappearance of a 17-year-old girl to recount three different eras in his native town of Split on the new most desired tourist site in Europe, the Dalmatian coast. Pavisic explains that he did not travel, but staying put in his native town was like watching three different cities. During the Soviet era in the 1980s, Split was a mining town, which he compared to the north of England which boasted a well-known soccer team sponsored by the mine. With the fall of the Soviet Union, as in Russia and many of the countries in the East, the go-go 90s or 1990s where everything collapsed saw the deindustrialization of the town as industry moved further east or to Asia and as corruption ruled as fortunes were quickly seized. In the 2000s, Split has remade itself again, this time as part of the global tourist boom in which the Dalmatian coast has thrived, with The Guardian calling the nearby city of Zadar the hippest place in the world. Redwater charts these changes with the jaundiced eye of a world-weary observer. On the cozy mystery side, there was Lionel Froissart, a former race car journalist who has just written a novel about the death of the much-loved Princess Diana. 
Foisard, though, refuses to entertain the many theories around Diana's death, perhaps involving the royal family, and instead blames the death on a poor black woman from the Bonlu or urban slums, focusing not on the potential assassination, but on the car that caused the crack-up. Elsewhere, Nicholas, not Okdog, from a Swedish aristocrat family who he said had a good run from the 13th to the 16th centuries, and the author of two historical novels, 1793 and 1794, claimed that he focused on the aristocracy who, who commit crimes, not because they are more untrustworthy than the poor, but because they are more imaginative. At the heart of the Roman noir's ability to shed light on forgotten periods of history was Thomas Cantalube's Fracas, set in France in Cameroon in 1962, where Cantalube, an ex-journalist for the investigative website Mediapar, related that France, after losing Indochina and Algeria, had settled on its new colony of choice. The French government went so far as to commission a study by a team of geologists to determine what raw materials were available to be looted underneath Cameroonian soil. Cantaloupe's book details how the French, in the period after Cameroon achieved independence and while it was attempting to then achieve financial sovereignty, acted with the government to punish and eliminate those freedom fighters who wanted to continue the struggle. Cantaloupe's work, both in Fracas and in his previous Requiem for a Republic, which detailed the merger of gangsters and government in the Marseille of 1936, illustrates how the noir novel can illuminate social problems instead of concealing them as practiced in its opposite, the cozy mystery. Carlo Lucarelli exemplified this in his three-day plan for how he hoped readers would react to his fiction. The first night, they would be up all night reading. The second night, they would be troubled by what they read and be up all night disturbed. The third night, he hoped, they would be up all night trying to figure out how things could be different. This is Bro. On the Global Literary Beat, Breaking Glass. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.